The China Eastern air crash disaster risks an even wider rift for Boeing and China, as politics could complicate the investigation and amplify the fallout. And I'll talk with Crane's government reporter and host of the AD Q&A podcast, AD Quig, about South Shore as the next battlefront in Chicago's gentrification war. And whenever we hear about gentrification fears, it's always that kind of delicate balance of, okay, how can we maintain the properties and the character of this neighborhood keep the people that want to live here able to live here, make it affordable for the people that live here, while not scaring off other folks. They don't want too many things to deter investment. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, March 28th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Cranes reporter A.D. Quigg, who is also the host of the A.D. Q&A podcast, which you can find anywhere you find your audio on demand. But A.D., you recently did some reporting on the next layer of Chicago's gentrification battle, and that is all kind of happening in the South Shore. Tell me about this. Yes. So South Shore, beautiful neighborhood on the South Side. And I had been hearing chatter about worries about gentrification there for several years. The city council took up basically a housing protection ordinance in Woodlawn, which is just west of the Obama Presidential Center. And what I heard at the time was like the next target for helping folks out who are afraid of gentrification because of the Obama Presidential Center is South Shore. South Shore is gorgeous kind of bedroom, lakefront community. Think of all the amenities that folks on the north side have near the lake, public transit, the lake, parks, proximity to the University of Chicago major thoroughfares, kind of like a a natural next spot for development to happen. So I had been hearing at city council folks from the South Shore Community Benefits Agreement Coalition, and the Community Benefits Agreement is basically saying, hey, city, hey, future developers, we are holding you responsible for some public benefit for whatever you do next as a result of development really taking off here. So they said, you know, South Shore is the eviction capital of the city of Chicago. There are more eviction filings in South Shore than any other neighborhood, and that has been true for a few years. The amount of rental housing is starting to disappear, and housing sale prices have been skyrocketing since the Obamas announced that they were choosing the South Side for this center. So we need some interventions as soon as we can. But that has kind of pitted longtime homeowners who have been underwater on their home values for several years against renters who would like to be able to stay because there's only so much protection that the city can offer all at once. They only have so much money, only so much capacity, only so much direct control. And these homeowners are saying, hey, we shouldn't cast the Obama Presidential Center as the villain here. We are excited to an extent about our values going up and we shouldn't do too much to discourage development because it could be good for us. And renters are saying, we hear you. We want homeowners to be able to afford to stay. And we want renters to have the same rights, essentially, to the same 
affordability to be able to stay despite whatever development happens nearby. And this is kind of exactly what has happened in all of those pockets. We saw this in Pilsen. We saw this around the 606 and some protections have been put in place there. You're right. By the 606, there were a series of interventions and that was like a red hot gentrification hotspot. It was like rated highly vulnerable by the DePaul Institute for Housing Studies, which I spoke to for this story as well. The city basically put a blanket ban on demolitions because there were some older multifamily housing stock that was being demolished and replaced with fancier single family homes. In Pilsen, there were a lot of separate efforts similarly around deconversion. So like one home that used to house three or four families being knocked down for one. So the city under housing commissioner Marissa Novara has tried to do kind of tailored solutions for each neighborhood. In Woodlawn, for example, there was a lot of vacant property, like a lot of vacant property. And the city owned quite a bit of that vacant property, something along the lines of 200 lots. And in some cases, those lots were right next door to each other. So the city could hold a big chunk of stuff that could be redeveloped into a bunch of apartments rather than one home. Or the city could say, hey, we're going to sell this to certain developers who will build certain kinds of housing that will be affordable for the people in the neighborhood. South Shore is different. The city does own vacant lots, but most of them are on the way southern end, which is further from where the pressure is happening. The pressure is happening on the northern end, closer to the Obama Presidential Center. There is more of a concern around vacant and abandoned housing. So there are some homes where no one has lived that are in need of repair, but are difficult for new buyers to come in and flip because they have kind of a legacy of fines and fees from the city, various building issues attached to them. So what the city has done so far is working with Greg Mitchell, who's the seventh ward alderman. Earlier this year, they passed what's called an encumbrance ordinance to try to essentially wipe the slate clean at those homes with a ton of back fines and fees to get them into the hands of potential future homeowners to either flip and rent or flip and own to kind of increase the housing stock, get a lot of those properties back online. The other thing that they introduced is a pilot program earlier this month to basically help condo and co-op buildings that are older. If you've been down there, they're like beautiful 1920s to 1950s vintage condo buildings that are gorgeous, but it's been difficult for tenants to keep up on repairs, either in individual units or shared common spaces. What they're doing is basically making loans available to help people fix up those condo units. And I'll be interested to see if, number one, if this pilot works and what kinds of buildings they expand it to. The city is trying to not discourage development so much, but also the priority sounds to be for the city, making it possible for people that live there already to stay there. But they're bumping up against activists who want the city to go much, much farther. And then there's also a political layer involved, potentially. Right, right. So the lead organizer of this CBA coalition in South Shore is named Dixon Romeo. He is a lifelong resident of South Shore. He's been a lead organizer with the coalition. He says his family, for one, is feeling affordability pressure. He says he's had to help his mom pay property taxes on his house. There was a lien couldn't afford rising property taxes. And they say they've done door knocking in the in the neighborhood and have heard a lot of homeowners getting pressure to sell, essentially. People coming in and saying, I can offer you this much for your property and I could take care of those leftover back city fines and fees. And the stats that they present, like I mentioned about 
evictions being number one in South Shore are true. The median price of a single family home in South Shore has gone up 150% since 2015. So the average house price there is $186,000. And the number of rental units in the neighborhood that cost less than $900 a month, which is kind of a standard measure of affordability, dropped by 32% between 2010 and 2019. So they have the numbers to back up their argument, essentially, that pressure is increasing. It's not red hot like it is in Pilsner was around the 606, but things are looking a little bit more tenuous in the medium and long term. But the local alderman, Leslie Hairston, says, I get this guy's argument. They're going a little bit too far. There's still a lot of affordable housing in South Shore. There's a lot of federally subsidized housing in South Shore. And this guy wants to run against me for alderman in 2023. He denies that he wants to run for city council. He says, you know, if Leslie Hairston had stuck to her promises and prioritized affordable housing in this neighborhood, I wouldn't have to be organizing at all. I'll be interested to see if he sticks to that. But the other thing that's interesting about him is he's working for a group called United Working Families, which is a essentially a political organizing group that was set up with the help of the Chicago Teachers Union and the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU, that is very progressive and has recruited a lot of candidates to run not only for city council, but for the Illinois General Assembly. There is politics at play, and I think it's going to play out for a while. And we've seen that affordable housing, especially in the 2019 elections, can be a really powerful thing to run on, especially with how tenuous the economy has been, how difficult it has been to afford a lot of things lately, and how much worse that could get as inflation continues. And so what are the stated goals of the coalition? What do they want to see happening in South Shore? So they want to see the city set aside all of that vacant land that I mentioned that the city owns in South Shore. It's about 100 lots, but like I mentioned, they are on the the far south side, essentially, of the neighborhood. They also want the city to create a $15 million immediate rental relief pool, so like a, a pool of money that any renter can draw from to be able to stay in the neighborhood. They also want a cap on rental fees for applications, move-in fees, and security deposits, so basically like the city to pick up the tab or for folks that are renting apartments to waive those fees. And then the big one that I think most investors would be scared about is a requirement for private developers to make 60% of their new units affordable for those earning 30% of the area median income. So I spoke to a couple investors from a group called Kaiser Group who are super active on the South Side, selling apartment buildings essentially to be renovated and rented out again. They didn't have any problem with that specific call. They didn't say, you know, if they do this, then we'll do that. But they basically said any added red tape in the area could deter investment. They said when they started out in South Shore early on in the 2010s, there was a lot more dilapidated apartment buildings to be able to pick up and convert. And now that supply is shrinking. There's still business to be done there. But they basically said the neighborhood has been super red hot and the Obama Presidential Center supercharged that to an extent. And they don't want to see that slow down too much. And I heard this from some homeowners, too, who said, Like I mentioned earlier, we want our property values to go up, but we also want to see investment in this neighborhood. We have a lot of exciting projects kind of happening in and around South Shore, new restaurants, new theaters, new yoga studio, new coffee shops, stuff like that. And they want to see these retail corridors that were previously booming on like 71st, 75th, 79th, and Stony Island to get as much investment as they think it deserves. They're hoping that as a 
kind of a pathway for tourists driving into the Obama Presidential Center that they're going to want to eat, drink, shop, stay nearby, and they don't want any like, they don't want too many things to deter investment or scare people off. Like, this is the big tension we're hearing whenever we hear about Invest Southwest, the mayor's big reinvestment in South and West Side neighborhood communities. And whenever we hear about gentrification fears, it's always that kind of delicate balance of, okay, how can we maintain the properties and the character of this neighborhood, keep the people that want to live here, able to live here, make it affordable for the people that live here, while not scaring off other folks. I encourage everybody to listen to Dennis Rodkin's podcast uh, series about Bronzeville, because this gets into all of this. They have managed, for the most part, to, and we're, we're still going to see how this works out, because there's been slightly more racial integration. It used to be such a segregated neighborhood just for African-Americans. And South Shore is, I think, latest stats, 96% black. How the city can help both economic integration and racial integration balance the needs of current residents, which includes renters and homeowners, with new folks that want to get in. This is always going to be Chicago's issue, and I'll be so fascinated to see if they can balance everything at once. And the other thing is like, Obama's name coming up over and over and over in these debates. Obama got a bunch of heat early on from this Community Benefits Agreement Coalition when they first started organizing way back when. The foundations said, here, we, we have made a bunch of hiring goals for local folks, for minority contractors, but there's not much we can do outside of that to keep this place affordable. Those are like microeconomic forces that we have no power over. So it's up to the city to help. And the city like I mentioned at the top, only has so many resources and doesn't want to meddle so much that they stop any potential positive investment in its tracks. Again, I don't envy anybody that has to work at the city when they have to figure stuff out like this because it is always very thorny. And I think we're going to see more thorny stuff pop up like this as we get closer to the 2023 elections. No doubt. Well, we will talk about it again, I'm sure. Thanks so much, ADA. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Coming up, the city extends its anti-gentrification surcharge measure on demolitions. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Cranes invites all general counsels, chief legal officers, and senior in-house counsels to our general counsel breakfast on May 17th. The event will feature Chicago's top general counsels offering perspective on current legal trends in business and litigation. Plus, our exclusive panel takes a closer look at how general counsels can best manage the risks and challenges in today's landscape. CLE credit will be available. To learn more and find out how to attend, visit chicagobusiness.com slash events. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The investigation to determine why a Boeing passenger jet flown by China Eastern Airlines crashed abruptly from 29,000 feet is potentially complicated by politics that risk making the investigation more difficult and amplifying the fallout. Bloomberg reports that with relations between Washington and Beijing at their lowest in years, the probe into China's worst aviation disaster in more than a decade asks the two sides to work cooperatively. And both sides stand to lose if the investigation becomes politicized, caught up in a wider fight for dominance between the two superpowers that at various points have touched everything from trade to the origins of the pandemic to even the war in Ukraine. 
Bloomberg also notes that a transparent inquiry into the March 21st crash would bolster China's ambition to be a leader in global aviation as a regulator and eventually as a plane maker on par with Boeing and Airbus. A prolonged investigation would be damaging for Boeing, leaving the Chicago-based company sidelined in its largest overseas market, where it's working to resume deliveries of the 737 MAX after a three-year grounding there. A shortage of the jets could crimp China's airlines once COVID recedes, especially if Boeing were to reassign their MAX delivery slots to other customers. So under a United Nations treaty, the country where a crash occurs leads the investigation into what happened, and representatives from nations in which the plane and its components were built have a right to participate. The U.S. National Transportation Safety Board has already nominated its investigator, along with a technical team from the FAA, Boeing, and the maker of the crashed jet's engines, Ohio-based CFM International. The China Eastern Aircraft, a 737-800, crashed into a hillside in southern China on March 21st. According to flight tracking data, from a cruising altitude, the plane suddenly tipped into a nosedive. No survivors among the 132 passengers and crew members have been found. At least one piece of the plane appears to have broken loose well before impact, a finding that adds mystery to the crash investigation. The piece that is at least suspected to have come from the jet was found about six miles from the main wreckage area, Chinese officials said at a briefing on Thursday. If investigators confirm that the part came from the jet, it would indicate the aircraft suffered some kind of mid-air breakup, which could offer clues about what led to the crash or at least shed light on the flight's final seconds. However, as Bloomberg also notes, it didn't take long after the crash for mistrust between the two sides to flare. Shortly after the crash, the Chinese assistant foreign minister accused U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken of, quote, spreading lies about genocide when China was dealing with the immediate tragedy. How callous, she said on Twitter, in apparent reference to a speech Blinken gave in which he listed China and Russia among the countries selling weapons to aid Myanmar. And U.S. frustration was already mounting over China's reluctance to put pressure on Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Bloomberg reporting also notes that in a worst-case scenario, U.S. participants in the China Eastern probe could be excluded from key elements of the investigation, such as full access to data and audio from the black boxes. The probe has, in part, become a test of China's commitment to aviation safety, an area in which it has improved significantly over the past two decades. U.S. crash investigators haven't yet traveled to China as a result of the nation's COVID-19 restrictions, but they are participating in the investigation, the NTSB said in a statement on Wednesday. So far, there have been no indications the U.S. will be excluded, according to reporting from Bloomberg, who cited two people familiar with the matter who asked not to be identified discussing the sensitive issue. The State General Assembly gave final approval to a bill that would fill most but not all of a hole in the state's unemployment insurance fund with money left over from the last federal COVID relief program. The action came on a 39-16 vote in the state Senate, sending the bill to Governor J.B. Pritzker for his signature. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines notes that the measure would allot $2.7 billion to fill a $4.5 billion deficit in the fund, which pays unemployment benefits to laid-off workers. That will leave a $1.8 billion hole likely to be filled by a combination of higher payroll taxes on businesses and reduced benefits for workers. 
Democrats who control a majority of the legislature argued that the action is responsible, leaving some federal dollars available for other COVID needs while picking up a bigger share of unemployment insurance debt than some other states, such as Indiana and Ohio. But Republicans disagreed, saying that the deficit could have been completely removed if Governor J.B. Pritzker and Democrats had given unemployment insurance a greater share of the $8.1 billion the state originally got under the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. As Greg Hines also notes, as for the question of how to fill the funding gap and with talks between business groups and labor having at least temporarily broken down, if no deal is reached, costs will automatically be split between the two. According to a 402-page class action lawsuit filed March 18th in federal court in Chicago, State Farm Insurance systematically undervalues the value of cars that it insures when it deems them a total wreck. The complaint alleges that Bloomington-based State Farm, the nation's largest auto insurer, instructs third-party firms hired to appraise the value of insured vehicles to apply a specified reduction to asking prices of similar cars in the area to reflect what was described as a typical negotiation. The adjustments reduce the cash value of the cars used to establish the loss the State Farm customer suffers by 4 to 11 percent, according to the lawsuit. Crane's Steve Daniels reports that that has the combined effect of trimming what State Farm otherwise would pay to settle the claim and lowering the amount the customer gets in coverage. The complaint says the typical negotiation adjustment is not based on any negotiations, typical or otherwise, and is not based on any market realities. The complaint also says the defendant applies the typical negotiation adjustment without contacting the identified dealerships or sellers, or considering whether the online retailer ever discounts its vehicles. The complaint continues by saying, notably, in applying a universal percentage-based typical negotiation adjustment reduction, defendant failed to consider that it is increasingly the practice in the used car market to avoid price negotiation by implementing no-haggle pricing, particularly as to internet-posted prices. The complaint further notes that particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic and the related supply chain problems with parts such as electronics for vehicles, used cars have been selling for premium. Which all means that if policyholders want to challenge what State Farm offers in a total loss, they're required under their policy to hire an appraiser to provide an alternative value, according to the lawsuit. They then are responsible for half the cost of a referee the two appraisers agree to use to settle the difference. The lawsuit describes the system as a deceptive, fraudulent, and unfair scheme that violates state consumer protection laws. A State Farm spokesperson told Cranes in an email, quote, As an organization, we take pride in our customer service and are committed to paying what we owe promptly, courteously, and efficiently. The email continued, quote, each claim is unique and handled based on its own individual merits. The filing of a lawsuit does not substantiate the allegations within the complaint. The email also said, we've recently learned about the filing and it is premature to comment at this time. In an earlier conversation with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, we talked about a pending anti-gentrification measure before city council. And now, demolitions of residential property in two gentrification hotspots will be subject to a $15,000 surcharge for two more years, after the Chicago City Council voted to extend the one-year pilot program. The surcharge, initially started in March of 2021, was an attempt to slow gentrification in Pilsen and around the western edge of the 606 Trail, and it was set to expire April 1st but it will now continue through April of 2024 as a result of a 47-to-1 vote by the city council. 
Earlier, the city's Department of Housing provided data that indicates the surcharge had been very successful at reducing demolitions near the 606, but less so in Pilsen. Demolitions declined everywhere during the pilot year of the program, in large part because of the pandemic's impact on construction. The Housing Department measured the declines in each of the two hotspots against its nearby neighborhoods. You can find more detail on this story, as well as many others, at chicagobusiness.com. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's government reporter, A.D. Quigg. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.